Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Driving Force Podcast. I'm your host, Chase Rosa, a former private equity analyst turned endurance athlete. This podcast will feature conversations with uniquely driven and authentic individuals across sports, business, and wellness who continue to achieve great things in their respective fields. By presenting their stories, uncensored and uncut, I hope to inspire you to take a step back, look within, and evaluate your path and journey. Today's guest is Sue Sotir. Sue is currently a coach at Breakthrough Performance Coaching, where she coaches athletes from complete endurance and triathlon beginners to, to those that cross the finish line at the Ironman World Championships. Before Breakthrough, Sue was a D3 swimmer at Tufts University and raced her first triathlon in 1989. Since then, she has raced triathlons from sprint to Ironman distances. In this episode, I discuss with Sue the training and coaching aspects of swimming, the art and science of coaching an athlete for an endurance event, as well as performance nutrition and post-race recovery. As someone new to endurance sports, some of her thoughts around stretching, nutrition, and recovery were eye-opening for me and may also be for a lot of you listening. And so, without further ado, my interview with Sue Sotir. Thanks again for coming on the show. Uh, I really appreciate it. Ah, it's my honor. Are you kidding? It's very cool to be asked. <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah, so for those of you listening, Sue uh, has been helping me out on a kind of as-needed basis to prepare for all of the endurance events I've got going on this year. And uh, swimming is an area that I knew almost instinctively needed the most work. So I scheduled uh, a lesson with her that'll now be next Monday. So hopefully my technique isn't a disaster. <laughs> It'll be all good. I'm sure it will. <laughs> Would you say that one of your expertise as a coach is swimming? Uh, it is. So I started coaching swimming um, 32 years ago at this point. I started coaching when I was 19 and uh, exclusively coached swimming for a good chunk of that period of time before starting to add triathlon to my coaching skills. So it is by far the place where I have the most experience. And I've also invested a, a ton of education and time and attention to developing how I communicate the swim. And you, you swim in college too, right? I was. I was a... Um, at best, an average college swimmer. Um, I was recruited to uh, D1 schools and D3 schools and chose a Division three school because an academic scholarship was going to always be there um, and ended up swimming at Tufts University in Medford, Mass. Got it. Um, and was, was swimming your main sport growing up? It was. Uh, I actually didn't come to racing until I was a teenager. I was a synchronized swimmer when I was young. So all of the makeup and the hair and the, the big smiles and all of that was my my initial experience. That, that was, I started that at age five. Um, so sort of a different route in than a lot of people will take. And when, so when did you start uh, the competitive aspect of swimming? I really started, I did like Saturday swimming in when I was young, but I started uh, racing summer teams when I was 12 at the Boys and Girls Club and then raced high school. And I was never a year-round swimmer um, for, for competitive swimming. I was a high school swimmer and was lucky enough to be part of a team and get some good coaching and 
put myself in a position to be able to swim in college as well. What's it, um, I guess when you think of swimming, um, it's a very, I, I, I tend to think of it as a very kind of solitary sport. Um, how does the team aspect of kind of swimming, um, I guess at Tufts factor into uh, that experience, if that makes sense? The team aspect of swimming is, it's something you can't really see from the outside, but you end up sharing this companionship and challenge without ever saying a word. And you end up laughing together in these 10 second rest blocks. And it makes something that most people would think is this solitary, horrible environment into something that's fun and shared. And and it creates stories of all the, the things that happen that you only notice in your own head, but then other people are noticing the same thing. So it really does make the whole process a whole lot more fun when you have a group with you out there in the swim. Yeah, that's, uh, that's awesome. And would you say that swimming is your favorite form of exercise? I wouldn't only because I love riding bikes and having fun. And I, I love doing things like, I mean, I can't ski this year, but I do love skiing. There's all sorts of different ways to enjoy moving your body. And there are only a few that I would prefer not to do. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And what would those be? Um, pretty much anything that involves rhythm and dancing. <laughs> and, and it's more just that I, I can't quite coordinate myself the same way others can. It doesn't mean I'm not having fun. It just means, wow, I'm going to hurt somebody. <laughs> yeah. Um, getting a little, I guess, deeper here on, on swimming, there's a writer by the name of uh, Ryan Holiday. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but... Uh, he says that for him, swimming is an immersive, transcendent experience, and for him, almost a form of meditation. Would you describe swimming in a similar fashion? It's funny. I wasn't able to swim for a period of time a few years ago where I'd hurt my shoulder. And what I realized during that point of time was it, it is exactly that for me. It is that sort of place where there is nothing else intruding and there's a rhythm to the mechanics of swimming and then a quietness in the water that lets you simply be and there aren't a whole lot of places where you are completely immersed in the moment uh and that that i mean that's the definition of mindfulness present-minded focus and for me, that is absolutely an element of swimming that is, uh, it's really helpful to keeping me balanced, frankly. Yeah. And do you think you get that same experience in the pool as well as maybe in open water? They are different experiences because in, in the pool, I can, I, I don't know exactly how to explain Uh, describe it but I can have separate tracks to my brain I can have the one side that's counting laps and and managing the mechanics and I have another side that can be completely free to sort of wander 
in open water, I find that I'm managing the environment much more consciously. I want to know where everything is, what everything's doing, so that I'm ready to respond because I understand the safety piece that goes on in that open water. Um, even when I'm by, like, um, have space around me. Um, but I find that I am able to be more mentally quiet in the pool than I can in open water. And I, I can't speak for what other people's experiences are like that, but that's sort of how mine ha has sorted itself out over time. Yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting. I know for, for me, I can't, and I can't really speak to this, the cycling, uh, yet since they haven't gone on a really long outdoor ride, uh, yet, but between running and swimming, swimming is certainly much more, um, immersive for me. And I, you mm -hmm. know, it makes sense. You're kind of forced to, um, I guess kind of focus on your breath as you, as you swim or else you'll, <laughs> I guess you'll drown. <laughs> <laughs> it helps. Uh, it yeah. helps. <laughs> um, but that being said, I think I feel I might feel more free running. Um, not quite sure where that is, but um, or why that is, but I just think that's uh, that's interesting. Um, would you say that's? I, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was gonna say I I kind of often wonder if it's sort of the thing that we're most comfortable with. Also, where if you are, if you're having to focus a little bit more on how something is happening you feel a little bit more anchored by it whereas if you can sort of simply exist in the experience you can be a little more free i think that that would make sense from a from a sort of expertise level as well yeah yeah that's um that's a good way of putting it a uh, good way of putting it uh would you say that swimming is the hardest form of cardio out of the three triathlon sports but maybe also takes the least amount of toll on the body I wouldn't say it is the hardest um, because of the the environment that you're in. Um, there is obviously more resistance in water, but there's also less impact. The more impact on the muscles, the more damage it creates. Uh, so, in, and the other piece that happens with that impact and weight bearing is your heart rate increases, which means your your demand for oxygen increases. And and swimming is not an ox. It, it is uh, it is technically not an aerobic sport because you can't breathe whenever you want to. But it is what is considered an oxidative sport in that you are drawing primarily on that sort of fat burning fuel source at the majority of training paces. So from a from that idea of being the most challenging cardiovascularly, your heart rate response is telling us that your cardiovascular system is responding at a lower a, a somewhat lower rate work rate or absolute work rate than you would at running. But for most people, the mental demand that is required with swimming adds a level of, of difficulty and energy use that leaves people feeling more exhausted. And then there's a temperature management side of things. You're, you're almost always in water that is colder than your body. And so your body has to burn more energy just in terms of keeping itself warm. So it's a, it's a far more complicated question than yeah, yeah. the simple question you asked. Uh, 
Um, does it take less demand or less toll in the body? It depends. Uh, I mean, from an impact standpoint, heck yeah. From a mechanical tissue question, um, it's going to depend on how somebody is able to move their joints, how they are moving their joints through the swim. It, it, for many people, the pain at the shoulder that results from swimming sort of in the way that folks do it, it can be more impactful than the landing damage from just that just occurs naturally from running. So it's it's not a question I can't answer with yes or no. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, that's a that's a much much better answer than a yes or no. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think for me, I definitely experienced the I guess the kind of mentally challenging aspect of swimming the first time I got in the pool. Um, as it, uh, I guess in terms of like the breathing aspect, I guess if that makes sense. Um, it's exhausting yeah. to figure out when to inhale, when to exhale, how to coordinate it while your body is also sequentially organizing a series of movements with a relative timing that if you mess up on it, you come to a sudden halt. That's, that's challenging. Yeah, it, uh, it sure is. <laughs> At least, uh, yeah, for me, for sure. Um, would you say the importance of technique in swimming is, um, I guess, much more pre prevalent uh, versus cycling and running? Would you Would you agree with that? I would. Um, if we think about water versus air, um, water on average is about eight hundred times more dense than air. Are some types of water less and more? Yeah. But um, on average, about 800 times more dense than air, meaning anything that occurs that it interrupts your forward progress, that is going to cost you effectiveness and, and eventually cost you more energy, which impacts your economy. And if, if we think about sort of people will always say with swimming, oh, you can either reduce drag or increase propulsion. Well, true, but the the equation for force drag starts with the resistance just from water, then can velocity contributes. So as your speed increases, your drag increases, period. Um, and it increases exponentially. Velocity contributes in a squared function to drag. You want to go faster, but it's going to create more drag. The next two components of that drag equation are what's called your coefficient of drag and your frontal area. Basically, how you're interacting with the water at the surface and how you're interacting with the water perpendicularly, perpendicularly or depth-wise. So if you have technical issues that are creating more drag in that frontal area or more drag as you hit the water with the shape you're hitting it well that means your drag is now increasing exponentially from your speed and from those other two contributing factors so you're now basically four times increasing your drag if your technique is flawed so if if 
there's one place that you need to focus attention and effort on. It's how you interact with the water, which basically comes down to your technical skill. I see. And what, um, from a coaching perspective, what are the most common uh, mistakes that you see um, technique-wise when people start training for a swim race or event? The, The... way I would explain that would be I see people trying to swim with just their arms. And if you, if you are just circling your arms through the water, you're not capitalizing on any propulsion. Because if you're just circling your arms through, you're pushing down and pushing up as opposed to pushing back, which would move you forward. And then uh, not focusing on how your body interacts with the water Um, most folks will think about head position or they'll start segmenting the body trying to make the hips higher or make the collarbones press forward things like that the body works best if we can align it and have it work as the primary driving force through the water Um, so what I see is mostly folks focusing on their fingertips which are way out at the outside and forgetting about the biggest portion that interacts with the water which is that head to toe body alignment interesting sorry i'm just trying to kind of like process all of that (laughs) no no i get it Um, I'm sure because when we look at swimming, when we look at swimming, the first thing that people direct our attention to are fingertips and elbows and, or, or maybe they'll say, oh, you got to get your head down or you got to get your eyes focused here. But if your body's disconnected from all of that, then it's basically like asking somebody to, to focus on what their toes are doing inside their running shoes. It's it's sort of working a little bit from the backwards side of things. Uh, in my experiences with with coaching, I found it to be more effective if I can get folks moving their body well and then connecting the other motions into something that's effective and forward moving. I see. Um, I, I, okay, I, I see how that works. It's um, it's kind of similar in. Um, or at least the importance of kind of that head body alignment is very similar to Brazilian jiu-jitsu, actually. Um, and if you try to take the body out of alignment with, with the head, um, you're just kind of put in a much more vulnerable position and you don't have the kind of the same amount of leverage or power to use over your opponent. So um, it's interesting to kind of see how it um, how that works in another sport too. So I, I would think that that – I would – think that that connection is is spot on because your force and power in martial arts as i understand it comes from the center of the body Mm -hmm. in swimming it really should be the same type of of priority yeah um i guess going back to uh, to coaching now. When did it? When did it all start for you? This um, coaching, this whole coaching thing. Um, it, it, when I was in college, we had to do some type of fundraising uh, for our swim team, 
And that meant either teaching swim lessons on Saturday mornings or teaching, or there was one sort of spot available to coach adults in master swimming two nights a week. And I, I am the child of a first grade teacher. I have had um, chaperoned trips for little ones for a very long time to help my mom out. And I took the adult slot as quick and as rapidly as I could volunteer. <laughs> so I started uh, with a group of master's adults uh, two nights a week when I was a sophomore in college. And you'd think, oh, okay, well, you're starting off with this nice little group of adults. I had three professional triathletes as well as uh, some other incredibly competitive age group triathletes. I was thrown in with sharks. Um, so I had to up my coaching game very quickly, right from go. And I would say that that taught me the importance of number one, communicating what it is you wanted people to actually accomplish. Um, but also making sure you didn't tell them something wrong. And, and those two pieces have kind of always stuck with me and I, I don't coach the same way I did then. Um, but those two priorities, communication and accuracy, sort of stick at the at the base of ex- what I've been able to do ever since. Yeah, and did, and have you held any other jobs outside of coaching, or has this kind of been like your whole kind of adult life and just been been coaching? So I have always coached, but I was my first job out of college was I was a Latin and Spanish teacher in a private school. And then, and I coached, and then I went back to graduate school um, for speech language pathology. And when I finished that, I worked as a alternative and augmentative communication specialist in a school for students with special needs full-time. And I coached full-time swimming. And eventually two full-time jobs started to take a toll and in in conversations with my husband and sort of thinking about what life I wanted to have I made the choice to to focus on coaching and coached um full-time for an age group team uh so that's a year-round USA swimming team for several years and then moved to coaching a high school boys team and at that point, as I'd been coaching them for a while, started to have gaps in what I knew and started to realize that there was stuff in particular on the sports psychology side that I didn't understand well enough and went back to school and got a doctorate. And when once I earned my doctorate, I was lucky enough to um, first work for a company doing education in the fitness market and then to be a professor at Springfield College in the exercise science and sports um, sports sciences department. And yet still through all of this, still coaching. Um, <laughs> and, and so finally, after five years out at Springfield, realizing that I'm a grown up and I was, I was having a big birthday, I was turning 50 and realizing, you know what, I'm, I don't suck at this, but at the same time, it's not the story I went back to school to write. What's the story I want to be telling on my next big birthday? And it was not that I was 
kind of having the job a million girls would kill for this tenure track professorship it was I, I liked being a coach coaching to me is applied science and it incorporates all of the different pieces of intellectual knowledge in the science realm with communication and also actually seeing the person that you're helping and getting to be a part of their sort of journey of realization of what it is possible for them to do. That's the story I wanted to be part of. So have I had other jobs? Yep, I have. But always coaching has been a thread that has been wrapped very tightly around everything. And that kind of dovetails into um, my next question. What's uh, what's your overall approach when it comes to coaching an athlete? I think you, you alluded, it, alluded to it a little um, there when it comes to kind of communication accuracy and then incorporating a lot of the science aspect into it. That's that right there. That kind of sums it up. Um, basically, I want to know uh, where somebody is uh, physically. I want to know where somebody is in their skill set. I want to know where somebody is in their understanding of what it is they can do. And from there, I want to know what it is they want to accomplish. What's their target? What's their aspiration? And then taking a, a, an evidence-based path to get them there um, with a little bit of humor and a little bit of fun along the way, hopefully, because if this isn't fun, then what's the point um but always grounded in in science of some type because if i'm just doing stuff on a whim uh, that ain't good uh <laughs> frankly <laughs> um so uh, understanding what it is i'm doing why i'm doing it how it's impacting the person in front of me and and what it's costing them and what they're gaining from it and keeping a balance between all those pieces is is the critical focus to me of the coaching yeah and um are there when new athletes or new i guess prospective athletes come to you for the first time um you know to be trained or, or coached what are some co common whys that you tend to hear uh from these athletes that want to say complete their first Ironman? A lot of it is, is they've seen something that resonated with them. And it could be that they saw a person that they identified with in some way go out and do this. And it made them realize that maybe it was something they could do too. And it took something that was a, a almost a fantasy and made it into a an approachable dream. Um, the other the other sort of most common thing is, is is a lot of adults don't have a lot of opportunities to extend themselves to challenge themselves in really. Uh, in ways that they are truly uncertain of what they are capable of. And that's a piece that I find a lot of, a lot of folks who I get to work with want to understand. They want to see what they can actually do and they don't really know, but they want to kind of investigate that space because how cool is that? Like 
you don't know what you can do and you're gonna actually push a limit like that that's pretty inspirational and aspirational in my mind and then the other piece is is a lot of folks start off with this idea that they want to accomplish something in the name of somebody else um, in order to raise awareness or, or bring attention to something. And that's where they start, but that generally becomes part of a, a bigger story for folks as well. Mm-hmm. And what are, have you heard some bad whys before? Um, I, I have had a few, you know, I've always heard the, you know, well, it was bar bet. I don't have a problem with bar bet. I really don't. Like if, <laughs> if a bar bet is what gets you started, like it's as good a why as anything else. As long right. as along the way you'll find something else. Um, the worst whys that I can think of are to try and prove something to someone else. Because that energy goes goes astray pretty darn quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, can it maybe get you out of bed on an, on a given day? Yeah, sure. But if if your bigger picture is to do something, to prove something to someone else, it's it's gonna something's gonna go astray in that journey. In my experience, it might it might push a limit for a little while. But at some point, if there's not joy in it for yourself or joy in it for the process or joy in it for the journey or joy in it for the personal challenge, motivation goes away real fast. Yeah. Yeah, I would uh, I would agree with that. Um, I don't think many people, if anyone would argue that um, technology and data has allowed for better training methods and better better coaching methods to improve overall uh, athlete performance. Uh, that being said, would you say that there's some, I guess, art required to coaching, maybe more so around preparing the athlete for the mental and psychological aspects of training? I think there's art in all of it. I think I, I obviously, I love the science. If you don't measure something, you can't actually be accountable for changing it. Uh, and our data and technology allows us to understand Number one, what an effort actually is and what it costs a person physiologically uh, over time. Um, That said, the art has to be part of it. Um, The the science, the ability to measure evidence, the ability to understand what an effort costs somebody, that objective data is necessary for understanding where somebody is and and where they need to go next or what's possible next. That said, the person's experience of a training session, of a race, of an event, of life, um, that colors how they interpret or experience whatever that physical effort was. And that matters. And, and it also impacts what they learn and it impacts what they need to do next. And the art comes from being able to hear what somebody's experience was, to see what it is they actually accomplished, to know and understand where it is they need to go, and then to select the next steps in the path for them using an evidence-based approach that is building on some type of 
physiological preparation, um, but also integrating their psychological set, current state, their needs, their task demand, where it is they're going and the toolkit they need to get there. That's the piece where the, the nuance, where the art comes into play, because there's a lot of ways to get somebody from kind of sitting at home thinking they want to do a half Ironman or a full Ironman to actually getting to race day. And, and those journeys, none of those journeys should look the same for any two people. Uh, everybody's experience and needs are going to be colored by who they are and what else they've experienced in their life. And, and that's the art piece is being able to pull from what they already have and apply it to what they need next. Right. So it's kind of like tying all the different methods that you have at your disposal and applying them appropriately to the unique person and their unique situation. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and there's, there's no one way. Uh, it would be super easy if there was one way, um, but there really isn't. And, and the way that's most effective for one person is going to be very different than the way that's most effective for another person with some commonalities between them. You need, you know, for an Ironman, you need to be able to, consistently produce race-specific targets for the period of time that you anticipate being out there. But how somebody gets through that preparation process requires a lot of different different hands to be held and different butts to be kicked, frankly. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> uh, do you like for athletes to keep a journal of their training? Um, do you have one for yourself? So we use, um, we use training software to deliver our training programs to our athletes and also use it. I use it to track my own training as well. We use a a platform called today's plan. Um, it's similar to what a lot of people may have heard of, which is training peaks, different software platform, Mm -hmm. um, within that, within today's plan, there's a place for subjective feedback, um, both ratings of perceived exertion, wellness uh, markers, but also just open comments. And what I love for my athletes to do, um, and many do it uh, in their own special ways, is to comment something about what went well in a training session, what could have gone better very specifically that was in their control, and how they would approach it differently next time. So kind of a what did you learn piece. And, And then any questions comments, concerns, anything else that I need to know about that session. And that process of reflection to me is as important as the training itself. Maybe not as important. Uh, You got to do the training first in order to have the reflection. Um, But the reflection piece is it keeps a handle on the process and it keeps the process of development very focused and aware and at the forefront of somebody's mind. And it doesn't matter if that journal's electronic or paper, having a process of reflection is, in my mind, key to two things. It's key to learning, and it's also key to sustaining motivation throughout a, a very long, what can be a very long training cycle for any type of preparation for a, a major event. Yeah, I would um, I would agree with that. Although I I think for me I'm having trouble kind of getting really detailed with 
with my journaling because sometimes some workouts are just kind of like oh it was it was fine i guess it was another <laughs> swim um nothing spectacular happened um maybe i increased my pace a little bit but that's about it <laughs> so so here's the structure that i like to to throw out to folks it's it's good better how and it's not my secret structure it's a it's a fairly common thought process in sports psych um but if you can do good better how even if it's a, a short good well and good showed up you know what could have gone better could have slept some last night well then how are you going to change that next time i guess i'm going to actually use my sleep hygiene process or whatever it is good better how gives you a a bit of structure and it, it can be one-liners it can be bullet points it doesn't need to be you know laura ingles talking about living on the prairie it, it really can be something for a sort of routine workout as routine as you know what really went well there was this one moment where i know i nailed my pedal stroke and what could have gone better you know what i probably half asked my focus in the second half of this thing so how am i going to do it better next time i'm going to bring myself back to minute by minute or five minute segments just something where you're keeping yourself quite honest um but also very process focused and not dismiss dismissing or diminishing what is a bread and butter or routine type event. My two cents. Right. No, that's, um, that, that's really helpful. Cause, um, it seems like for me, it's just been kind of like a couple sentences every, every day. And, uh, but I think that that'll definitely give it some more, um, more structure and, um, probably some more benefit to it too. Um, yeah, and I'd love to say that I do it every day. I really would. I don't. Some days I'm, my comments are a little snarky and some days my comments don't exist, but I try to at least make it more often than not that I have some type of reflection that is, reminds me of, of what went well because competence promotes motivation. Need that. And, and something that is actionable, because if I'm not learning something, then I'm missing an opportunity. Right, right. What are your thoughts on incorporating yoga into the training, med- in the, into the training regimen for an endurance event? Does it have a specific adaptation component to what it is that you are preparing to do? No. Does that mean it doesn't have value? Also, no. Um, If yoga is something, number one, that you enjoy, number two, that you leave feeling better than when you went in, uh, or number three, teaches you something about either yourself or how your body moves, then it's a benefit. Um, But from a specific adaptations to the demands you are about to incur, it's it's not going to build endurance. It's not going to build force capacity. It's going to build body awareness, body, uh, your ability, your skill to move. And it's going to also improve a mental piece of it as well. Um, but doing more yoga is not going to make you a better Ironman. Unfortunately, (laughs) really it's riding your bike and learning how to eat. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, that being said, a lot of, uh, 
you know, the poses in yoga incorporate um, some stretching aspect. So I would, I would guess that stretching is um, regardless of it, whether it's in yoga or maybe after a workout is very important. So you're going to get a little bit of a pushback from the research literature on that. Uh, Static stretching consistently has not demonstrated benefits to force production. That said, the research studies are limited in scope and, and typically short in duration. But that sort of, that is definitely the evidence that exists at the moment. Um, but again, if it makes your body feel better, if it makes you feel better, if it helps you understand how your body moves and it helps you move better, then it's going to be better. Interesting. And not to go too far uh, down this path, but um, what uh, I guess is there evidence for stretching to help prevent um, injuries? Nope. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so far, there is no evidence that anything prevents injury. That's, that's sort of a grand statement. I, I get it. But um, folks in the research world have tried to correlate um, muscle imbalances, have tried to correlate mechanical patterns of movement, have tried to uh, use foam rolling, um, different types of mechanical stretching, massage, and and what and other folks have also tried to try uh, sorry tried to use um, movement screenings in order to identify and prevent injury, and the only demonstrated correlate to injury so far in the research literature is stress. Higher stress, higher likelihood of injury. And, and that frustrates a lot of coaches because we understand that if people are stronger and move better, they're able to move faster and move better. Um, but in terms of injury prevention, we don't have that answer from the research literature in a way that is hands down, no question supported. Wow. So uh, you're, you're saying as far as like research and evidence goes that like stretching and foam rolling really don't play any sort of a role in terms of preventing injury or optimizing performance for an endurance event? There is nothing that is either predictive or supported through uh, a past look, a longitudinal look that currently exists. Again, I'm limiting my statements to what currently exists because here's the other piece. If you feel better doing it, if it makes your body feel better, then you feel better, period. And if you feel better, then you're going to move better, move more consciously, be more able to be responsive. But from an evidence-based path, uh, there isn't anything. (laughs) Dynamic stretching will help with power production and some types of lifting preparations will help with power production. Uh, But so far in terms of injury prevention, we don't got it yet. 
Wow, that's uh, that's really interesting. Um, because uh, you know, kills for- you, doesn't it? It <laughs> yeah. kills me too. <laughs> yeah, cause because you, you, you. No, go ahead. Go ahead. What I was gonna say is because you you want to know, like you want to understand that what you're gonna do is gonna make you do something better. Um, but even for folks who are really good at assessing people's mechanics. we don't got it (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's uh that's 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 pretty crazy um i guess it maybe emphasizes the importance of being kind of self-aware and kind of in tune with how your body feels too right absolutely uh it's one of the pieces that i think has been so poorly communicated throughout the fitness industry um, is the idea of pain. Pain is telling you something. You know, pain, uh, the, the, the pain is weakness leaving your body. You know, sweat is your fat crying. All of these, these sort of torturous things that, that are su- supposed to be badges of honor with fitness, they're not. Pain is a marker that something in your system is not functioning well. It is either not moving well or it is not healthy. And and there's a difference between pain and discomfort. Uh, you know, physical discomfort that occurs because you are pushing a, a physiological limit. Well, that's going to back off and stop when you stop. Well, if pain is still there then it's telling you that something is not right in your body and and that needs to be acknowledged and and respected and same with illness and and same with uh, fatigue because when you're fatigued you're more likely to to miss a beat or to do something wrong and and that's more risky to me um, than missing a session or cutting a session back. I, I, I always will err on the side of drop your watts or, or take the day, whatever works. Because if your body, if you are not aware of how your body is feeling, how you are fueling your body and how you are resting your body, how can you possibly be advancing your body? Right. Yeah. That's, um, that's wise words. And I was kind of laughing to myself, um, silently when you were saying that, just thinking of my dad, I think my dad needs to really hear that. (laughs) Well, I I think it's how we were, you know, a a lot of us were brought up that way. You showed up no matter what, and you pushed yourself until you bled and you did not question it because that was what you did. And did it teach you certain types of mental toughness? Yeah, maybe. Maybe. But did it put a lot of people under a knife or in an athletic training room or, or injured? I, I would argue that it did. And, and I, think there's, I think that's where we have the opportunity to be a lot better in terms of, of using research evidence to help people progress is we understand much more about relative energy deficiency and the impacts that that causes and we also understand a lot more about the, the effects of stress. And if we put people in highly stressful situations for which they are unprepared, 
the risks go up in in terms of that but yeah no i like your dad and i probably came through the same type of system which was you know if you were slacking off somebody threw something at your head <laughs> i don't encourage that as a motivating <laughs> uh, <laughs> parameter like that, that that ain't the way to go but that is exactly how we were raised and to push through no matter what and and just just you you, you gut it out and the reality is, is do you need to push limits sometimes? Yeah. But those limits, you push a little bit and you push it when you're well, when you're your best. Right. It, it, not the other way around. You don't push through, you, you don't take a point of weakness and try to exploit it. <laughs> it's not going to go well. <laughs> yeah. And don't, don't push the limits all the time too. <laughs> right. No, you can't. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I guess shifting topics a little, um, mm -hmm. I have a pretty good sense for this, but for people listening, what would you say is the absolute minimum amount of time for someone to start training for, uh, you know, their first Ironman and have a good chance of successfully finishing it? I can't say, I wish I could say, can't say, um, some people come to this point in life with a massive endurance background. Right. They, they can get away with very little, quite frankly. Um, and, and finish and finish maybe not as successfully as they could have with training, but they can finish. There are other folks who come from a very different past life experience and they will need a good amount of time on feet every week to be able to accomplish that day in the time that's allotted. Um, what I would say is there are a couple of, of things that you know you need to be able to do. You need to be able to be on your bike for a good solid chunk of time, uh, you know, I would say you want at least a five hour ride or at least a couple five hour rides in there with mm -hmm. some running coming off of them, because that combination of efforts of coming off the bike, a long bike ride and then moving your body more is both a physical skill as well as a, a nu nutritional skill as well as a mental skill. Um, but from a from a time per week perspective, if somebody's been a consistently moving athletic person for their whole life, they can get away with very little true training time in a week. And and by very little, I mean like 10 hour type thing. Um, mm -hmm. But other folks are going to need a lot more because they don't have that deep well to draw from. So yeah, long answer for saying, yeah, I don't know. I can't answer that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it really kind of just depends on the, the person and their athletic background is what it sounds like. Yep, absolutely. What um, So what got you into competing in endurance events in the first place? My friends. <laughs> <laughs> it started off with um, the reason I did the first triathlon I did was uh, a guy who was one of what's called the big four way back in the day. Uh, he was one of um, the really high quality, high performing, uh, long distance triathletes, a guy named Scott Tinley. 
uh, he came and swam with our team at Tufts and he happened to swim in my lane when he was there for a couple of days and we were chatting and I had started riding bikes and I had started trying to run, which for swimmers is a lovely learning experience. Um, but he just made it sound fun and, and, and you got to play at these different sports and these other people did it too. And it sounded fun. So I was like, okay, I'll try that. And <laughs> it really was that sort of whimsical. And then what I found in triathlon was a community of people who liked to, to do things that were physically challenging and liked to laugh a lot about it afterwards. And that's what kept me in the sport, even as sort of in parts of my life where I had some health issues and, and some other things going on and I wasn't racing as I had before, it still was this community of people who valued play. And that's, that's, that's a big deal in this life. And finding people who like to play like you like to play makes it fun. So yeah, friends, friends are what got me in it and kept me in it. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, um, I guess when I first kind of got the idea for myself of doing, um, an Ironman and these endurance events, I didn't really realize how much, how big of a community aspect there is, there is around it. And I think maybe probably a big part of that is due to how, I guess, challenging it is in the first place and that you kind of need other people around you to, um, support you and help you, I guess, throughout your journey. Cause if you kind of do it, want to do it by yourself, it's going to be really, really hard, if not almost impossible. It's really lonely. And, and, most many of us are introverts or or managing life stresses or or doing other things like that but at the same time there's a difference between being alone and being lonely and if you're out there and you got nothing and you're doing this thing for 10 hours a week and nobody else is sharing at least some modicum of it with you it kind of isn't fun yeah (laughs) i could imagine it's probably not (laughs) um I want to I want to go back to the um, I guess the concept of, of stress and physical training. Um, I think it's I think it's really interesting. So for um, I guess as research as it concerns like the research around it, if you're really high stressed, let's say from from work or or whatever, and you're um, you come home and uh, you're just incredibly stressed, but you have like a 10 mile run to do, um, out in the cold, let's say it will, your risk of injury then be much greater if on that 10 mile run than if you came home, I guess, relaxed. I uh, I can't say it for specific events that I, that type of research doesn't exist. It's generally thought of it or, or what is known, um, is that your total stress burden is what eventually can lead as a predictor to injury. And if you think about that, it really makes sense because stress has a physiological impact on your body. Mm -hmm. Um, And when your body is under stress, whether it's muscular training type stress or life emotional type stress, 
your body can't necessarily differentiate well between all those things. And if you overload the body in any way, it's going to take away from what it can do next. And that, that goes for training, that goes for life, that goes for lack of sleep. If, if, you, if you push your body beyond what it is currently capable of doing, a little bit, it can adapt. If you push it beyond what it is currently capable of doing by a lot, it's going to throw the brakes on that because it only has so much capacity to adapt at any given time. Um, so on that particular given day, I can't say, but what I do know is if you had a high stress day and you've got a 10 mile run in the cold, let your targets go. Like, will it help you to move? Yeah. Most likely it'll help you to move because it'll pick up some of that mental gook and it'll give it a place to just work itself through. It'll give you a little bit of meditative time or a little time and place to be just present and not carrying all those burdens. But if you're also trying to knock out your 708 pace for four miles and then your 704 pace for three, like that's just another stressor. Like <laughs> finding the yeah. balance between what your body can manage and what your mind can manage and what your total stress load can can conceive of it's gonna vary day by day person by person moment by moment for some folks but total stress whether it's life stress or training stress is stress and has to be accounted for somewhere so if you've got this period of time where you are in an incredibly high stress either life or work moment well, guess what? Maybe your training should back down, whether it's in intensity or volume or both. And, and that will help your life balance because you'll stay healthy and you'll stay motivated and you'll stay engaged and you won't go to the well so many times that there's nothing there. And that's, that's the piece that I think humans, particularly type A high charging type humans forget about is they're like well that's my that's work stress that shouldn't impact this I, I just gotta go I gotta go hit it I gotta go hit it and then that physiological cost of that run then becomes higher than was intended because of the effortfulness of all of it and then you're tired so you don't eat enough after and then you're stressed so you don't sleep well after and then you rinse and repeat and rinse and repeat that that sets up a cycle that is not a cycle that is optimal for training and recovery. Can I say it's a cycle for injury? No, but is it optimal for training and recovery? Heck no. <laughs> right. So it's, it's the accumulation of kind of all the stressors that you have to kind of keep, keep aware of and kind of watch out for. Exactly. Exactly. And be willing to, to let, a little bit of that perfectionism go in some areas in order to manage what is the most critical thing to manage at any given moment. And for most people, that's putting food on on the table and making sure there's a roof over your head. Right. Yeah. No. For for sure. That's a uh, wise words. <laughs> um, let's uh, let's talk about nutrition now, um, and I guess specifically nutrition close to 
to race day. Um, mm-hmm. Let's say it's the week of the Ironman. Um, are there certain meals or types of meals that you should be looking to eat at certain days of the week versus others? You're going to kill me because my answer once again is going to be it depends. <laughs> okay. Um, what I would say is, is for most people going into that sort of last week, you're, you're as fit as you're going to get. And if you, if you normally eat a food, eat the food. If you normally don't eat a food, don't eat the food. Um, as it gets closer to the race, there are some folks who will benefit from a carbohydrate loading protocol, eating high fats for a couple of days and then eating high carbohydrate for a couple of days. That has to be tested ahead of time. That has to be tested prior to in a race rehearsal because some folks respond to it really well. And some folks feel like bloated warthogs and gross and, and that doesn't help their race performance. Um, so as a, as a sort of standard, absolute advising the general sort of athlete, if you normally eat it, eat it. If you normally don't, don't. And the days close to the race, cut down on your fiber, cut down on your roughage, go to more plain, easily digestible foods that aren't going to clog up or back up your digestive system. And if you're racing in the heat and your body tolerates salt well, add a little more salt to your food. Um, it, it, race day shouldn't be, for most of us, this massive, spectacular invasion of our worlds. This should be something that we have practiced for and and developed a routine for in our training and basically if it's worked in training it's going to work pretty well race week too for most folks but it, if you haven't tried it before don't and if if you know you really love it and it's going to make you feel great keep it in there cut down on fiber that would be sort of my general takeaway there Right. So I guess just kind of once again, going back to um, being in tune with kind of what makes you feel good. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, for me, I have I have a boatload of of allergies. I have lots of different things. So during that race week, I just become more hyper aware um, and I I I narrow down my food choices to things that I know work and I, I take no risks. Um, and for me, that sort of carbohydrate loading type piece doesn't, I know that doesn't work. So I don't do that, but I also know that I need a little more salt and a little less fiber. So I make sure the choices I make incorporate those targets or, or goals. Um, and, and other people are going to be somewhat, more free with what they're able to take in and hopefully that's something they figured out in training what i do know is don't go out for a bowl of chili and seven beers the night before the race (laughs) unless that's what you've done every single night before (laughs) your big rides and your big runs and it's worked out fine but in general not gonna work out fine (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. right so it sounds it sounds like that maybe the the biggest mistakes that um, maybe people make, or you've seen people make regarding their, 
diet or nutrition well while they're training is maybe eating foods that or being on a diet that they've seen maybe online as being ideal for uh i don't know training for a marathon or or an ironman but for them it's actually not ideal does that make sense like for just for them you know i i think i think there's a lot of of you must do's in this world presented in that way and and the reality is is the human body's evolved to accomplish tasks in lots of different ways so if it if it works for you cool keep it in if it doesn't cool get rid of it um what i would say the biggest single mistake if if we're going to talk mistakes that i've seen is people under fueling themselves men women period doesn't matter um you can't diet and train at the same time you can watch your nutrition and focus on your nutrients but you cannot diet and train the the the, the concept of race weight and um watts per kilo those things that they, they are there are benefits to being lighter in some circumstances but there is no benefit to being underfueled ever. Um, if you cannot produce the adaptations from your training because you do not have the building blocks in terms of the energy you've ingested, then it's a fail. It doesn't matter how much work you've done. You, you, you haven't gained the benefits of it if, if the fuel isn't there. And, and I think one of the biggest things that folks that happens to folks during race week in particular is they feel bloated because they haven't been working out or training at the same higher level. And then on top of that, when you are healing, your body is more inflamed as it should be um, because that's part of the healing process. So you're now retaining more fluid. And then on top of that, you're also hopefully eating in a way that is uh, topping off your glycogen stores. And when you are holding glycogen, as you store glycogen, you also store water with it. And, and that's a necessary and helpful byproduct and benefit. So people in race week feel like, yeah, I used the phrase before, bloated warthogs. You just don't feel as lean or as, as sharp as you have, but it's all very necessary compensations to prepare you for that race you're targeting. Interesting. Okay. And uh, how about fuel during the race? Um, there must be kind of a more um, I guess pointed approach for lack of a better, better term for, for everyone in terms of kind of what you consume while you're racing. It, 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 again, it's going to come down to sort of individual size, um, your individual weight, height, muscle fiber or, uh, fat to muscle ratios. Those are all going to influence how much fuel you need. What we understand as sort of general rules is you can uptake between 60 and 90 grams of carbohydrate per hour, depending on the type of carbohydrate you, you choose to consume as your, as a maximum, some folks are going to be able to tolerate less than that. 
some folks may actually be able to take in more than that and and work through it over time. Um, those those targets that sixty to ninety um, grams of carbs that target is a generally good place to start your training trials with um can you dial it in more based on weight yes can you dial it in even more with some blood testing absolutely um but in general you can kind of start at about 240 calories if you are kind of above 150 pounds um and if you're a little bit lower than that, start a little lower than that and work on what you can tolerate. Um, what you'll generally find is that liquid calories go down really well for many people. There will be some people who find that the liquid calories don't go down quite so well and they do better getting water and electrolytes from fluid and then getting food from food. And I wish I could give like a standard, yeah, no, you totally need this much. Um, But you start with what those sort of guidelines are and then work to find what your individual tolerance is and then see if you can't push it a little higher as you get into that training until you find a place where that it just isn't quite right. Um, But for, so I'm, five foot seven i'm a right race about 135 ish pounds give or take um and i'll take in on the bike 200 to 240 calories per hour and then i will take on the run a bit less than that i can't tolerate quite as much on the run um I work with some other folks who are of a similar size and they can take in a bit more on the bike. And I work with a few folks who take in just a slight touch less on the bike, but can take more on the run. So it stays more even for them. It's another one of those places where there's, there's some hard and fast guidelines out there, but within what those guidelines are, it has to be individualized to the person. And, and what they can get down but basically you need if you're going to perform at high intensity you need carbohydrates if you're going to perform at low intensity fat might do it um, and what you've got stored might do it but if you're going to have any intensity at all you need carbs and if you're going to be out for a long time and particularly in the heat you're probably going to need sodium as well and you're gonna need fluid yeah no that's that's uh that's helpful um i think for for me for me especially i didn't really realize the importance of uh i knew it was important but like how important it is to um really get the proper nutrition during the race um i always i guess thought that you know if you have a good meal the morning of or the night before you'll kind of be good to go but for something like an iron man um you need to be like consistently fueling yourself, which I didn't really appreciate at all uh, until I kind of started this journey. Yeah, the best phrase I've heard is fuel for the work required. 
you know, if, if the work required is incredibly low and incredibly short, you probably don't need very much fueling. But if the work is long and has some intensity to it, you're going to probably need some fuel. Yeah, right. I was going to ask you um, your opinion on this movie uh, called Game Changers, but I think from our previous conversations, I think I already know what your answer is. But um... <laughs> Here's what I'm going to say. I can find you a research study that cherry picks other research studies that can conclude that cigarette smoking and nicotine is good for your lungs. <laughs> so what I would say is, are there benefits to a plant-based diet? Of course there are. We, we, we've got nutrients in there that our body needs. Um, from a critical eye standpoint, a lot of information was very carefully selected to continue to inform or, or support a, a viewpoint or a, a strongly held belief. And I think for some people, yeah, they're going to do great. I think for other people, that might not be the lifestyle for them. And, and there's lots of ways down to the same path, which is a healthy, happy, well-nourished human. Right. Which I figured was going to be your answer. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, I love that. It depends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm such a fan of the, it depends, but, <laughs> but the, the reality is, is, is in, in most cases, there is no single answer. Uh, even if we look at research, research is uh, conclusions are drawn based on averages, based on means, even statistical conclusions. That's what they're doing. They're comparing means of groups. And that means means um, that means that it is a reductionist viewpoint and it, and it takes away the individual nature of each component. And, and reduces it to a single value. And that is always going to be less nuanced than reality. Reality, everybody has a different history. Everybody has a different background. Everybody has a different, uh, different body and, within the, and different experiences. And within those pieces, that means different things are going to be successful for different people. With some things as a, a given understanding in that, you know what, if you do endurance work, you're going to build mitochondria and you're going to have more fuel availability at your, at your working tissues. Great. If you do endurance type work, your cardiovascular system is going to have adaptations. Your muscular system is going to have adaptations. Your connective tissue is going to adapt. All of these pieces we know are true for everybody. What we, what is not true for everybody or is not the same for everybody is the timeline that that requires for each individual human and everybody's going to be a little different. Right. Yeah, no, that's a, uh, yeah, I would agree. Um, going into recovery now briefly, um, how many rest days do you typically recommend that an athlete take after finishing, um, an Ironman? And what do those rest days look like? After an Ironman? Yes. Well, uh, after an Ironman, it, the, the next day, it should be a fun day and a celebration day. And typically what I will put in people's schedules is, you know, do something. Don't just sit there, but do what you feel like doing. Um, but nothing strenuous. 
what I like to see for folks after an Ironman is, you know what, a, a couple of days of just shenanigans and silliness and being with friends and then maybe go for a walk or, or a little swim or, you know, something where you're, you're physically moving, but not incurring any stresses. Your body is going to do better if there's stuff moving through it than if stuff is just sitting there. Um, when will I have somebody start training again? It's, it's going to depend on their personal experience, but typically it's going to be three weeks anyway before there's really structured looking anything. Uh, and that's only if they have another goal. Um, the exception to that is somebody who qualifies for a world championship with a six week turnaround. Um, for somebody like that, I'm going to still give a couple of days of nothing, nothing, but then there's going to be some deliberate light movement just to keep activations, but it's light. Uh, I mean, I'm like, I'm talking like a 20 minute swim, a 20 minute easy bike ride. It's super light. And then from there it builds as they report to me how they are feeling. And, and we work from that. And it, I typically hold them off a week longer than they really think that, that they need. Um, but it, an Ironman takes a toll on the body and, and you need to respect it with allowing time for, for that full healing process to occur afterwards. Yeah, so it sounds like it's really important to um, uh, really get back into training slowly um, before going back into your regular, I guess, exercise regimen, assuming you have another goal that's up and coming. Yeah, and, and what's funny is our head will feel like we're fine, and even our our muscles won't be sore anymore, but there is a whole lot more that went on in your body, you know, from an endocrine system standpoint, from a, an, uh, a connective tissue standpoint, all sorts of other things are going on in the body. And all of that needs time to get back to, to homeostasis, to get back to baseline. And, and that's the piece that we can't feel. And it takes longer than our brains and our, our egos typically appreciate. Yeah, and, and during this time, there must be um, uh, more injuries that tend to happen with athletes who might be eager to get back into training quickly when they kind of feel this way. Again, can't really say that, but what, you, <laughs> what will happen in my experience is people's motivation will, will wane pretty quickly because their times and their sort of external feedback or extrinsic feedback will will not be providing any type of reinforcement for the work they're doing. They, they just won't see the gains. Um, if in many cases, there are some people who can do it extremely well for a period of time, but then it eventually that sort of load either flattens them out from a mental standpoint or, or from a, a body progression standpoint. Um, burnout is real and, and mental burnout takes a, a toll on physical performance. And 
if you just keep hitting it hard all the time without any type of back away or break or change in in venue it's it, it results in the same outcome which is you stop making gains or you get stuck or you don't like doing it anymore. And that's, that's not the point of this. There, there are definitely people who do this for their jobs. Um, but for most of us, and, and frankly, even for them, there has to be an aspect of joy. It can't be drudgery. Right. Yeah. No, that, uh, that makes sense. Um, so what's, what's kept you driven, uh, you know, for so long to just to keep competing and, and coaching? just that kind of you just love to do it uh, the 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 competing point uh, side of things has fluxed over time frankly uh it, you know there's times where i enjoy the participation but don't enjoy the training and that shows the, the results there have been times where i've been incredibly uh motivated and intrigued and life has thwarted my capacity to train so there there's that side um the the competition side of it for me is 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 a reason uh it's it's a reason it's a target it's a reason for going out and doing things that are challenging because you know what that that target's out there and i want to do well at it when when things are firing right um from a coaching standpoint I love, I love the, the pieces that need to coexist. And I love that each story that is being written is different. So each person's story and, and where they're going and why they're doing it is different. And to have the opportunity to be a part of all of these different stories it's it to me it's really special it's you know i'm never going to serve the world in a way that a nurse serves the world where you are caring directly for somebody in a moment of crisis and i'm never going to um you know be a doctor who cures cancer but what i get to do is i get to be part of bunch of people's little journeys into doing something that captures imagination for them and captures challenge for them and moves their little moves their dial a little bit forward and uh, like who who doesn't want that to be part of their story and their legacy like that's an honor quite frankly right so it's kind of like you found um i guess your purpose of kind of serving others through through coaching yeah in and it sounds really big and grown up when you say it that way but it's i have the the knowledge of all of this science stuff and i love that knowledge but it's it's my privilege to be able to use it in this way Right. And I guess, uh, I guess lastly, just, uh, to, to end here, what, uh, what advice or words of motivation would you like to, uh, leave the people listening who might be going back and forth on whether they should register for, um, you know, their first endurance event, whether it be like a half, 
half Iron Man, Iron Man, Marathon, etc. There aren't a lot of things or a lot of chances as grown-ups to do something that we don't really know that we can do. And there's a little bit of magic in that. When we're little kids, we we don't know that we know how to walk. And we get up and we start figuring it out. And we don't know how to run. And we get up and we start figuring it out. And we don't know how to read. And we get a little help and we start figuring it out. As grown-ups, we don't get a lot of chances to be in a place where we have to figure stuff out. And I think that that is such a magical opportunity and and there's a lot of people out here who you know love being part of that challenge and that journey and and share that sort of wonder with you and do it (laughs) (laughs) yeah no um that's uh that's good advice um and i think that's a good uh good place to end and uh and wrap this up uh Sue, thanks again for coming on. It was uh, it was fun. Uh, this conversation was fun. Thank you so much for for asking. This, this was fun. What's the uh, what's the best way for people to contact you um, about training or coaching? Uh, if you check out our, I coach with a group of uh, seven coaches total. We are Breakthrough Performance Coaching. If you go to breakthroughperformancecoaching.com, um, you can connect to me right there or feel free to email at Susan at breakthroughperformancecoaching.com. Great. And uh, guys, you can also follow me on Instagram at Chase Rosa four for updates on new episodes and on my endurance training journey. Thanks everyone who's listening and see you next time.